know that when we're dedicating our babies to the Lord, we're not actually just dedicating them, we are dedicating ourselves. So I want you guys to know that this morning, that your, your, your child really does not know what's going on right now, um, except there's a lot of people that they have never seen before. And uh, so right now, you guys are dedicating yourselves, and we as a church are dedicating to support and love on their kids and to support them as uh, parents. And so this is really for every parent in the room, whether you have young kids or grown kids, it's still the same. We are part of a community of people that without each other, we are not going to be able to raise our kids in the Lord as well as we would together. Okay, so as you're up here dedicating your kids, you're dedicating yourselves to raising your kids. And so I'm going to leave you guys with the charge. I'm going to leave you guys with the charge, and then we'll be done. Okay, I want to read from Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Listen to this. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting down in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. And if you look at the next picture, um, this is a picture. These are called phylacteries. Okay, And Jewish people back then, and often a lot of Jewish people, devout Jews today, still wear these and they actually tie them onto the back of their hands or they put them right there on their foreheads. And you know what's in that? Inside the phylacteries are God's law. Because they want to be so reminded of the way God wants them to live. Okay, And the best way that we can possibly show our kids how to love God and to love people. Commandment 1 and commandment 2 is this. From Romans chapter 12. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see what this is saying is for parents, I mean for all the parents in the room, especially for you guys standing up here, this God's, God's love, God's word, everything that God is, is not just a part of life. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a church community thing. It is every single part of your life that it, it lives and it breathes through everything that you do. So I don't know if you really want to go home and just and carve into the, the front of your house. That would be weird. Um, so, but I don't know. You, you know, sometimes we do weird things for God. Um, but you get the point. We want to be people that everything that we do, and especially everything we do with our kids, reflects what God wants for us. So you guys have a huge job. All parents in the room, we have a huge job to raise our kids to love God and to love people. The last thing I want to read this morning, and this is really a charge to us as a church. It comes from Titus chapter 2, first eight verses. It says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Love the word of God may be that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You see, this has to do with every single person in this Room. So if you're here today, you have the privilege of being a part of this baby dedication for these parents up here, right? Right? So do we agree as a church family that we are going to come alongside them in the good, the bad, and the ugly to help them raise their kids in the Lord? If you agree, one, two, three, we agree. One, two, three. All right, I want everybody to stand up with us. And I'm going to present them to you. In order, just so we're going to put their names up here, we have the Gentozzi family, Ayla Elizabeth Gentozzi, we have the Brockman family, Adam Joseph Brockman, and the Clarkson family, Emery Johanna Clarkson. The band is going to come back up here, and what I would like to do right now is I want everybody sitting in the seats, I want you just to put your hands up toward these families, because we are going to pray a prayer of blessing on them. And this includes everyone in the room. So kids over there, you can do it too. And uh, I want you guys just to know that this is your family also. We want to love on you. We want to help you. And we want to see you become the best parents you can be. And this is coming from a guy with kids your age. And so uh, we need your help. We need their help. And, uh, and so we dedicate ourselves to raising our kids for God. So everybody, let's just pray for them. God, we thank you for these families. We thank you for their babies. God, we thank you that these parents are desiring today publicly to say, first of all, we want to raise our kids for the name of God, for the name of Christ, to love God and to love people. And secondly, we know that we cannot do it on our own. So God, everyone in the room with their hands toward these families, we dedicate to helping these families to to loving on these families, to being with them through thick and thin with their kids and loving their kids no matter what. No matter what, God. We need you and we love you. And God, as we begin, as we continue to worship, our offering is going to come around. God, we want to we be found giving with joyful hearts, God. And so I just pray that you would bless these families, that you would bless their children, that they would raise them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Go ahead and give them a hand. Give them a hand. Go ahead and have a seat. We are uh, continuing the book of Mark today, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 8. I, I always thought my buddy Tim was a pretty expressed guy. Uh, appears you've been outdone by your own son. <laughs> I, uh, I, last week, I uh, enjoyed coming the first part, uh, the middle section there of Mark chapter 8. And I, and I don't find that uh, all the time 
my message inspire people, but I, I believe last week it did inspire. Uh, Debbie was telling me on Friday their 35th wedding anniversary is coming up, and Raleigh already made the reservation at Red Lobster, so <laughs> you're welcome. Inspire to greatness within our marriages and setting that bar high. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 here. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, here's what it said. Jesus and his disciples went out to the village of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So the question before us today is this question that, that Jesus asked his disciples so many years ago. Who do you say that I am? And their response, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And when asked this question still today, and you, you would ask people, hey, you know, tell me about Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Their responses may be very similar to that. Well, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good example for us to follow. When asked the question, who do you say that Jesus is, there's all kinds of different responses. I would tell you this, that there is no greater question that you will have to answer in your life. How you answer that question is both going to influence and impact you for your life now and for all eternity. See, what we do with Jesus impacts, impacts how we live our lives, how we interact with people, and most importantly, where we spend all of eternity. And so I, I want to keep bringing us back to that question. That's where we want to start this morning with this question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We'll circle back to that. So, he asked the, the disciples that question, who, who are people saying about me? What are they saying? Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And he, then he points it and directs it straight at them. Okay, that's what the crowds, that's what the people are saying. But who, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Listen to Peter's response. Peter says this, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, we, we talked about last week, you know, we looked and we said, okay, there are guys like Paul, and Paul has this miraculous encounter with, with God on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, he sees this great light, and all of a sudden he goes from killing Christians to preaching the message of Jesus. And like that, he's changed. And then we see guys like Peter. And if you look through the scriptures, and you would read through the gospels, you see in Peter a guy who He'll get it a little bit, and then it's like he takes a couple steps back. And I think most of us, if not all of us, relate a whole lot more with Peter than we do with a guy like Paul. Because Peter, and as we were talking last week about spiritual blindness, it's like he gets these touches from Jesus, and he encounters Jesus, and a little more is revealed to him, and a little more is revealed to him. Now, we don't know where in the Gospels Peter finally makes that decision, where he finally crosses from death to life, where he finally makes this choice for Jesus. We don't know where that's at. And I was talking to my father-in-law who was in town the other day, and he said, well, it could have been even after as far as the resurrection. And it's true, because there's never a moment when you say, okay, he's fully got it. He'll give you glimpses of it, like here. Well, you're the Christ, right? You're the Christ. 
He gets these glimpses like, okay, now Peter's finally having some of that spiritual blindness healed in his life. You are the Christ. Now, here's what's important about that statement. For, for Peter to make this statement, you are the Christ, here's what it meant. He said, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the king. See, Peter, like the rest of the disciples, they understood. They understood what the Old Testament scripture said. They understood that a Messiah was to come and he was to be the anointed one. He was to be the king. But not only the king, the king to end all kings. The king in the line of David that will come and end all injustice, all evil, and put things right in the world. There was a Messiah, a king, a Christ who was to come. And Peter recognizes, this is the guy. This is the guy we have waited for. This is the guy who the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets pointed to. You are the Christ. It seems like he gets it, doesn't it? Wow. That's, you realize, Peter, what you just said? You, you understand that Jesus is this Messiah we've longed for. Doesn't end right there, though, does it? So Jesus warned them, don't tell anyone about him. Okay, we talked about that last week, that there is going to come a time when they are going to be commanded to go into all the world, to preach this good news to the ends of the earth. But that time is not yet. So Jesus is telling them, hey, don't, don't go out and tell that quite yet, because there's still work for me to do. It's not time for me to die quite yet. So he tells them, don't, don't go tell people that yet. And then verse 31 Jesus then responds, he then, he said, here's what he says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and then he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. All right, Peter, you got it, you got it, but, but, you understand that I'm the Messiah, you understand that I'm the Christ, but... You don't quite fully understand it. See, what these guys were expecting is they were expecting a king to come and march into Jerusalem and set up his kingdom and rule over all the world. To restore order, to restore peace, to end evil and injustice. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were longing for. That's what they'd been taught as children. And that's what they were waiting for. But Jesus says, all right, you got it. You kind of understand it, but let me tell you a little something else. I didn't come to set up a, a, I didn't come to take the throne. I came to take the cross. I came to bear the cross. See, this picture of what you have, what the Messiah, the Christ, the King is to look like, you're right on that. But you don't fully understand what it's going to look like. And so listen to what he says again. He says this He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must suffer many things, and he goes on to say, and that he must be killed. He must be killed. So breaking that down a little bit, the first thing he says there, the Son of Man. Now, if you would read through the Gospels, you would understand that this is Jesus' probably favorite term for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man often. Now, looking at it, you would think, okay, he's, he's calling himself, he's, he's a human, right? He's a man. He's the son of man. We discover through the Gospels that he is the son of God, and he's also making the claim that he's the son of man. We understand that. Fully God, fully man. Jesus making that claim. 
But when he uses that phrase, he, he's telling us a little more. And this is, this is out of Daniel 7. Here's what it says in Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision. All right, here is the vision. Now, this is a vision of this Messiah that is to come, this messianic man who is to come. It says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Okay, so the vision, he sees one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is what he's saying. The son of man. This is who I am. And the disciples recognize that. Yeah, they knew Daniel 7. They knew the Old Testament scripture. They knew this statement of the son of man was one as the son of man coming with all authority. The nations would worship him and would bow down to him. They knew that. They understood that. They loved that picture of him, right? Isn't that an awesome picture? All, everybody's going to worship him. All authority and rule has been given to him. It's a great picture of this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ that was to come, the Son of Man. And so they love that picture. Unfortunately, it, it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop just at him ruling, does it? Jesus does something here after he says, okay, the Son of Man's coming. You know that Messiah you've longed for, you've waited for. The Son of Man is coming, but here's what he must do. He must suffer many things at the hands of the leaders. He must be killed. Okay, I'm the Son of Man, that, that messianic man that you've been waiting for, longing for. The Messiah is here. I'm the Son of Man. But how you've envisioned the Son of Man to look, how you've envisioned the Son of Man to come, is nothing, nothing like you've dreamed. You can read in Isaiah 43 and 44 and Isaiah 53, and you get this picture in those chapters of this servant of the Lord who's going to come and suffer. Many of you are, are familiar with those passages, and you see it and you look at it. Well, the Jews believe that. They see that. There's a servant of the Lord coming. These guys, they knew the scriptures. What they didn't do and what Jesus did for the first time in history, had ne nobody had ever made this connection before. What he did is he connected this Daniel 7, Son of Man, Messiah to come, with this suffering servant of the Lord. And what he was showing them, you're right, the Messiah is here. I'm the Messiah, the Son of Christ, uh, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of Man. He's here. But, but, I'm not here to take the throne. I'm here to take the cross. And I must suffer. And I must die. And he points it, and, and, and my father-in-law talking the other night, and he said, this is, still, this is still a stumbling block for the Jews. They can't wrap their mind around this idea of a suffering king, a suffering Messiah. It just doesn't make sense. How can one come to, 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 to end all, all evil and injustice only to be killed? To end all the world oppression only to have his life taken from him. Yet this is what he does. How can he defeat evil and injustice by being killed? In verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Peter doesn't understand it, right? Peter doesn't get it. From the time Peter was a little child, he knew and he studied the Torah. He understood the Old Testament scripture. He probably had that wrapped around his hand like Nick just told us. He knew the word. He knew what the prophet said. He knew all this. He knew Daniel 7. He knew this great picture of the coming king, that he was going to come and conquer and reign, and everybody would bow down and worship him. And so Peter... And probably all the disciples, right? They all had the same taught as a child, Messiah's coming, this is what it's going to look like. I mean, you go to John 1 and, and the encounter with Nathaniel, and he says, oh, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. These guys understood Messiah is coming. This guy looks like the Messiah. And Peter's struggling with this. Yeah, but Messiah's coming to, to end evil, end injust, all injustice. How can you come and suffer and, and, and die? That, no, that can't be. That can't be. See, Peter, he, he kind of latched on. He says, I'm on. I'm with you. I'm going down with you. And he knew that if oh, Jesus is going to suffer, that surely means the same for me. But if Jesus would reign and rule, then me, kind of as his right-hand man, well, I'm going to reign and rule with him. And he loved that picture of the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come to rule, to end all that was wrong in the world. But here Peter, Peter says, no, that cannot be so, cannot be. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus tells them he's going to Jerusalem not to defeat that evil, to defeat evil, but not by a throne, but by a cross. That's how he will defeat him. We, we see one other thing here in that statement that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be killed. And it's a key word in there. And it says this, must, right? He doesn't say, hey, the Son of Man's going to come and he may die. But he must. That this idea of the Messiah coming to die, he must die. Now, we could spend probably weeks. We can just spend weeks and, and never stop talking about the reason that Jesus had to go to the cross. The reason that Jesus had to die for our wrongdoing, our sin. We could, we could go on and on about all the reasons that is true. I just want to look at two. Two reasons that, that Jesus must go to the cross that I think fall in line with this passage. And the first one is love. The second one is law. Love and law. Two reasons Jesus had to go to the cross. The first one being love. Is that we can never truly love someone until we have experienced unconditional love. Now, we think we may know what that means, but we, you know, I got a wife, I've got kids, all these things. Okay, I understand that concept. But, but unconditional love is someone who loves us that doesn't need us, that doesn't need us for anything. And this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what Jesus went to the cross for us. See, God doesn't need us right? But God has done this incredible thing for us. Why? Because he loves us. Nothing in return. Looking for nothing in return. He loves us. And only when we experience that kind of unconditional love can we ever give that kind of love. And, and there's so much evil and oppression and injustice in the world today and the reason is so because they haven't experienced that unconditional love that only God offers through his son Jesus. 
And until you've experienced that unconditional love in your own life, well, you can't give it. And so I, I think the first thing we want to see on here is that he created us and he paid such an ultimate price for us, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. And the second thing is this idea of law. There's a legal side to why it must be done, why he must suffer, and why he must die. Now, I don't know if anybody's owed you a debt before. Okay? If someone's owed you a debt, you understand this a little bit, that if there is a debt to be paid, it, maybe something's broken, damaged, whatever else, and to fix it, something has to be paid. Now, there's three things that could happen. You could go on not functioning with that, or the person who wronged you could pay that debt, right? They could pay and have it repaired. Or the person who's been wronged could absorb that debt themselves, right? And this can happen on an economic level where somebody may owe us money, but it can happen on a very personal level as well. Maybe a friendship, right? Somebody's ruined our reputation, a relationship in disarray. Someone's wronged us. We feel they've wronged us. And we have a choice in that, right? We, we if we've been wronged, we can act vengeance, right? I can get even. Okay, well, they did that to me, and I'm going to do that to them. But what are we doing when we do that? Well, we're becoming like the one that's wronged us. Or we can forgive. We can absorb the debt ourselves. Now, if you've ever been wronged, I mean, truly wronged, that you know that if you are the one to forgive, if you are the one to absorb the debt, well, there is pain, and there is suffering, and there is agony in doing that. Uh, you think about a broken marriage, or if someone was unfaithful in a marriage. Well, the wrong spouse could easily say, you know what, I'm not going to, no, not going to do it, whatever. But if they choose to absorb the debt, if they choose to forgive, wasn't there pain and suffering and agony in choosing that? See, anyone who has been truly wronged and chosen to not take vengeance, to not get even, but to truly forgive, man, there's suffering in that. There's agony in absorbing that debt. And if you've been truly wronged and you've gone through that, you know what I'm talking about. To truly forgive, there's that, that pain and that agony that comes with it. Someone has to suffer for forgiveness to happen. And it's the same thing with Jesus going to the cross. See, there, there had to be a price paid. We, we serve and, and, and we have a creator who is holy and perfect in who there is nothing wrong. And we, if we're honest, know that we're not, right? We don't measure up. We fall short. There are things we've done wrong in our life that don't measure up to his greatness and his perfection. We've wronged him. We've wronged him. And there must be a price that is paid. Must be a price that is paid. And the beautiful thing about this Messiah, this one, this suffering Messiah who was to come, is that he absorbed that debt for us. For us. And so when we're encountered with, the, with this question, who do you say that I am, for, for those of us who, who can respond and say, you know what, you are the Christ, 
You're, you're the living king. You're the one we've waited for, the Messiah. And we understand he came to suffer and to absorb our debt as only he could do. We can't do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. Only he can take that debt. Only he can absorb that debt. And how we answer that question and how we know, and not just intellectually, right? It, this isn't a multiple choice test and I can choose, okay, he's the son of God. Son, no, but that not only intellectually, but that we believe in our heart, that we confess with our mouth, that it changes who we are and how we live our life. Only Jesus offers that. Only in responding that he is the Christ, the Christ, the King, the Messiah. He is the one. And the only way that God cannot judge us is that Jesus himself went to the cross and absorbed that debt for us. The only way. So continuing on, verse 33, here's what it says. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of men. What a statement, right? Get behind me, Satan. Here, Peter just makes this incredible statement. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're, you're, God's, you're God's son. You're the chosen one. An incredible statement. And a few verses later, get behind me, Satan. Now, does this mean that all of a sudden Satan, or, uh, Peter grew a little horns and had a little tail coming out and you know, had a pitchfork in his hand? No. Satan didn't possess Peter in that moment. But what, what Jesus is telling him and stating to him is that you're siding with him. If you go and, and you would read in, in Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted, right? Jesus is being tempted in Matthew chapter 4, and one of the temptations, Satan takes Jesus up on this high mountain place. Okay, there's this high mountain, Satan's up there tempting Jesus, and he says to him, look, see all the kingdoms of the world, right? Look at all these kingdoms. And what does he say to Jesus? You can have them. They're yours. Take them. Take them. All these kingdoms. Because who's in charge of that? Right? Satan himself is in charge. And the reason there is so much oppression and corruption and evil and injustice in the world today is because the, these kingdoms of the world Man, there's the demonic influence from them. Satan has his hold on these places, right? So many places around the world. It doesn't take much. Turn on the news, right? I mean, see what happened over in Iraq, right? This is what's happening around the world. And so what Peter is being told by Jesus in this moment, he's rebuking him because he's taking the side of the world order, the way the world is, and not the way the kingdom of God is. Colossians, Colossians 2.15 says this, Jesus going to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, the rules, the rulers and the authorities of this world. Jesus goes to the cross and he disarms them. How? By his death on the cross. And, and are they gone? If we look around the world, are those gone? 
right? Isn't there still evil and injustice in the world? Yes, absolutely. But what Jesus has done is he had turned it upside down. See, it used to be that, yeah, that's what we desired, that's what we longed for, power, authority, money, position, all of these things in the world. That's what we wanted. That's what we longed for. But Jesus comes along and says, no. And he turns the, the, these, this whole thought upside down. And now these, these governments and, and these kingdoms who oppress people, you know what their biggest threat against you is? Right? I mean, go, go to James Foley, who... If you heard anything this week, pay any attention to the news. ISIS, right? They beheaded him. The biggest threat against us now is that somebody may take our life. But what does Jesus come and do? He disarms the powers and authorities of this world. And now the greatest thing somebody can do to us, Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so no longer... Do the rulers and authorities and the kingdoms of this world, those that oppress us, have that hold on us? For those of us that have answered the question, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. Jesus says, turn it upside down. And I'm no longer controlled by what the world thinks or by the power and position of this world or the money of this world. Because Jesus has turned it upside down. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever has, uh, loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it a man for, to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul. So if he's the king and we answer this question, who do you say that I am? If we call him the Christ, if we recognize that he is the Messiah, he is the one who has come to bear our sins, to absorb our debt. The question then becomes, how do we respond? How do we respond? Jesus himself said he's going to the cross. He's taking up the cross. He's going to suffer and die. And for those of us that choose to follow him, you know what? He's saying we got to do the same. We must deny ourselves, pick up our cross, right, and follow him. These guys knew what he was saying. They knew what the cross meant. They knew what persecution and crucifixion looked like, that you would be thrown on a cross naked, gawked at, laughed at, spit on, mocked and ultimately murdered. They knew. They knew what he was saying. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. In verse 35, he says, whoever loses his life will save it. When he's speaking of life, he, he, it's the Greek word psyche. Okay, It's where we get psychology from. And what he's saying is that this is your identity, this is your being, this is who you are. Okay, You're losing your life, right? Lose your life to gain it. Now, what he's not saying here is that by choosing Jesus, you are throwing away your identity. You're no longer who you were. You're no longer the things you were. You're not throwing your identity out. But instead, he's telling us for the first time, by choosing Jesus, you actually have an identity. See, we're not this group of robots that stands in a line and does this and does this and does this. 
But for the first time in our lives, when we choose to answer that question, who do you say that I am? We have a true identity found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And he tells us in verse 36, he says, don't build your identity on the things of the world. He says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Every culture has a different list of things, right? If you accomplish this or do this, then you've arrived. In in some cultures, it's all about family. If I've got a family that loves me, if I spend time with my family, all this, then I've got what I've, really, this is my list of accomplishment. In an individualistic uh, culture like which, in which we live, right? Okay, if I have power and position and money, well, then, I've, then I've arrived. I've done what I've come to do. I have all that the world has to offer. But if, if you look and you see people who seemingly, by world standards, have it all, right? And then something goes amiss, something goes wrong, and their whole world falls apart. I mean, look at examples we have out there. I mean, you see Robin Williams, who took his own life, right? From world standards, he had fame, he had position, he had money. The minute things start going a little wrong, their whole world crumbles. Because they have no identity. And their identity is in things of this world, not in Jesus himself. And what Jesus offers us is for the first time. For those of us that say, yeah, you are the Christ. He gives us an identity. I want to read, this is a quote from Mere Christianity. It's a quote by C.S. Lewis. It's at the end of the book, uh, kind of the last couple pages here. Here's what it says. It says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christ, all different, will still be few, too few to express him fully. He made them all. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounds and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly called myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up in my physical organism and pumped into, my, pumped into me by other men's thoughts and even suggested by other devils. I am not in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. See, until we answer this question, who do you say that I am? And we can respond, not just on an intellectual basis, not just that we can cross the, check the right box, but that he has permeated our whole life, that he has transformed us, that our, our very heart and our soul, he has changed us. That's where real identity happens. That's where we, for the first time, have an identity. And it's found in Jesus. And when Jesus tells us to go deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him, he's telling us not about the things of this world, those things that you've longed for, you've worked for. We are to die to those things. The gospel message is, is not as Peter had pictured it and wanted it and longed for it, 
Jesus is going to come riding in and set up his throne, but the gospel came in weakness. And if we were to follow Jesus, you know where it begins? It begins in weakness. It begins not my longings, my desires, but in his. Now we ask ourselves this question, who do you say that I am? In the end, there's only two responses. In the end, there's only two ways in which this question can be answered. Either I believe he is the Messiah, he's the Christ, or I don't. And there's no middle ground with Jesus. In verse 38, at the end of chapter 8, we see one response. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when it comes to his Father's glory and the holy angels. If we reject Jesus, he rejects us. If we deny Jesus, he denies us. If we, when asked the question, who do you say that I am? I don't know. I I don't care. He rejects us. He denies us. In 9-1, we see the other response. And he said to them, and I tell you the truth, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with its power. Now, what he's not saying is we're not going to physically die, but you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power, right? And you get a glimpse of it at the resurrection, don't you? Jesus dies and he raises from the dead the kingdom of God at work, the kingdom of God at work at Pentecost as well. See, someday, someday, love is going to triumph over hate. And someday, someday, life will triumph over death someday. But until that day comes, Jesus wants us to get a glimpse, get a glimpse through the resurrection, through Pentecost, through his working in our lives, a glimpse of the way God has intended it to be. Right? You go, go read the Lord's Prayer, what he said, your will on earth as it is in heaven. That he wants us to get a glimpse of that now. Get a glimpse of it now. That we'd find our life and our identity in nothing but Jesus. I want to leave you with one quote. This is one more quote from the book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis, at the end of the book, says this, Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your own ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But, but, look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else will be thrown in. Where do you find your identity? Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. God, we we thank you for, for this Son of Man that has come in power. But he didn't come to take the throne. He came in weakness. And he must, he had to, he had to suffer and die to absorb my debt. And, and we want to remember that now as we, we take the bread and the juice. We want to remember that Jesus has absorbed it. 
Jesus has, has taken away my sin by his work on the cross. Yeah, yeah that should move us. That, that should change us. That should make us look at a passage like this and, and seeing what it looks like to follow you is denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following. God, help us to realize that the only true identity we ever have comes in you. God, may we live differently because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And most importantly, for all of us in this room, may we take this question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? And God, may we respond, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the King. And I want you to be the King of my life. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you came and suffered for me. And I can remember that now in this bread and this juice. Your body broken, your blood shed. For me, you absorb my debt. Thank you for that. We're faced with that question, who do you say that I am? A question Jesus asked his disciples over 2,000 years ago and a question we all must answer still today. And what you do with that question will impact you not only now and your identity and your life and being a new creation now, but for all eternity. And so I challenge you, I'm no fool to think that we've all answered that question, right? I'm no fool to think that some of us may, may know intellectually what it means. I may have no idea what it is to lose my, lose my life so I may gain him and the gospel. So I pray this morning that as we are faced with that question, we can respond that he is the Christ, the King, the Messiah. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for, for as we've gone through Mark, everything in Mark leading to this question. Who do we say that Jesus is? And how we respond. There is no uh, thing of more importance than how to respond to that question. God, may we be challenged. May we be challenged. Man, that we would seek him, to know him, that he's the Christ, the King, the Messiah. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.